Father, we praise you for that new life that is in Christ. I pray that we would be able to lift that high, that your work through your spirit would guide us and direct us to understand this truth that we've sung. And these truths that we've sung, that we've read together and recited together as a congregation. We praise you for the new life that's in Jesus and we pray that you would now draw to saving faith those who know him not and for those of us who walk with you in fellowship and love. We praise you for this new life that is in our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Why did Jesus Christ live? Secularists might answer that question, say, well, it's kind of a dumb question. Like all of us, he was just born. He had no real say in the matter. Jesus was a famous teacher, certainly, but there's no particular why for his life any more than there is for any of us. Ask this question to a large swath of professing Christians, and something subtly happens. They sidestep the why, and they move right to the what without hardly seeing it or knowing it. Why did Jesus Christ live? They answer, Jesus lived a good life and taught his followers to live good lives. And for such people, the good life of Jesus ironically looks an awful lot like theirs. So if the person is politically conservative, then Jesus taught the good of hard work, of, of self-reliance, of respect for country, strong families, and traditional sexual ethics. But if this is a liberal Christian, then Jesus taught the good of feeding the poor, and caring for the sick, and welcoming immigrants, and denouncing the abuse of power and defending sex workers and the like. We might be forgiven the cynical response, so for you, the reason Jesus lived was to confirm how you live, what you want to see happen. But how did Jesus answer this question? It's a crucial part of the investigation. What answer did his chosen representatives announce to the world? consistently together, what was the message that they gave as to why Jesus lived? This is no merely academic investigation. First of all, it has everything to do with our eternal destinies, of which we have sung this morning. But second, it has everything to do with the why and the how we live together as a local church. And what we've sought to display here this morning, not as a performance, but as what we do every week for this very reason. The answer to why Jesus lived must determine why and how we gather in his name. The two work in tandem. And this is much of the burden of the Apostle Paul as he writes to his understudy, Timothy, who's giving pastoral leadership to the church at Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. We move to this book today, the first chapter. We look at specifically the second chapter. But in his formal greeting of Timothy to start this book of 1 Timothy, Paul identifies himself as an apostle, that is, a chosen 
spokesman for the risen Savior. So what he is saying is not free to say whatever he wants, but what Jesus taught him to say about himself. And he is in sync here with all of the other apostles as to why Jesus lived and who he was. We notice here as chapter 1 and verse 1 that Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. It was his privilege, it was his joy, and yet it was at the command of the Lord with his authority that he writes to Timothy that he speaks at all about Christ. But not far into this letter, Paul gets right after this question of why did Jesus live? And he announces it in verse 15. Notice it there. Chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, including me. And we could get into some length as to what he meant by I am the foremost. But notice the reason Jesus lived. He came into the world to save sinners. You can see that there's more here than the moral example of Jesus, isn't there? The universal apostolic witness was that Jesus was sent to earth on mission to save sinners. To rescue people who break the law of God, to rescue them from the eternal judgment which their sins deserve. This is the why that Jesus lived on earth. This is why he came, to save, to rescue those who break the law of God from that judgment. Now as we enter into chapter 2 and settle down there for uh, our time together today, we must bring 115 into the conversation. Because this mission of Jesus to save sinners is at the heart of everything that Paul says to Timothy as he helps him understand what a church is to look like, how it is to function. The why of Jesus' life and mission must be reflected in the why and the what of Christian worship. In fact, if a church does not see clear on why Jesus came, why he lived, it cannot worship God faithfully, even though it may claim his name. Such a church is certainly capable of entertaining people. Such a church can create social connections. It can serve the community, but it cannot worship God in spirit and in truth because it is out of sync with the very mission of Christ. Apart from personally seeing why Jesus came, why he lived his life, in fact, you will find no reason to gather with God's people for worship at all. There may be some other reasons and connections why you come, why you are part of a church, but at the heart and the core of it, you're missing the central piece that he came to save sinners. Fully grasping the why of Jesus' life, the Apostle Paul asserts then, first of all, as we note this passage in chapter 2, that the church is a household of prayer for the salvation of the lost. 
That may seem very obvious, but let's tie it together with what the mission of Christ is. If that's the mission of Christ, then the gathering of the church is in part to be a household of prayer for the salvation of those who do not know Christ. Notice chapter 1, verse 2. He says, first of all, then. And I think it would be good for us to highlight that word, then. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Let's pause there for a moment. First of all, then... The then is capturing the logic of chapter 1 from all that Paul has written there, but certainly epitomized in verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. As he does that and gathers those people, it makes perfect sense for them to be a household of prayer for the salvation of sinners. Christ's mission to rescue sinners from judgment is why all sorts of prayers are to be offered for all sorts of people. I say all sorts of prayers. You see it there in verse 1, the supplications. I, I, don't, I, I think these four words are overlapping, interlocking. They're not meant to be exclusive in some way. We don't need necessarily to go into some long study about what each one is saying uniquely. It's fairly obvious. Supplications are asking God to act for His glory. Prayers, just a generic term. Intercessions, focusing more on petition and appeal in the behalf of others. And then thanksgivings, obviously rejoicing in God's saving works. So all types of prayers are to be offered in assembly for all sorts of people. He narrows in here on kings and all who are in high positions. That might miss us a little bit from a Western perspective, but from an Eastern perspective, the idea here is these are the representative heads of everyone. And so by praying for them, we're praying for everyone that is, so to speak, below them in societal status in their perspective of that day. They are the representative heads. This, so this, now, we understand this is no mere call to prayer so that the church proves neighborly, thoughtful, and patriotic. There's far more going on here than that as he calls for prayer for these individuals. Praying for the salvation of governing officials as representative heads of all people asserts what? It asserts that Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. We are praying that Jesus will rescue these who rule society, for he is the ruler of all. And we see this, we can connect it so well here to Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. No individual has ever been able to say that all authority is given to me on earth. There's those who have tried and failed and will continue to fail. But Jesus said, All authority is given to me on earth and in heaven. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I mean, that outside of what Jesus says here, that's obnoxious. We take our faith, we take the name of Christ, we take the Christian gospel into all the world and say, submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ as Savior. It's obnoxious unless he is who he says he is. And in that case, he has authority over all nations, giving us that authority to then, upon making disciples, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them 
to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Time and place, the Lord goes with that message wherever it spreads. And so the local church is to be a household of prayer for the salvation of the nations. Did you hear that this morning in the prayers that were offered? Do we hear that week by week in our understanding of who we are and why we gather? There are other reasons, as was even indicated there, as we speak of the teachings of Christ. But this is one specifically that Paul points to here, this necessity. And so if you are a born-again follower of Christ, it is important that we value the importance of prayer in the assembly and join in heartily. We gather in the name of Christ specifically for this reason to pray for the nations to respond to that message. There's a certain irony here. And that is it is not hard in our culture to find church attenders who see prayers in the assembly as a turnoff. They're too long. They're too many. They're too often. We can do that ourselves better. Why in the assembly? Because this is what Christ has called us to. We gather in this way for this reason. But when we understand what Jesus is up to, why he lived, what is his mission, then we gladly join our voice in prayer with his mission to see the salvation of the nations. Now, if you're not a born-again follower of Jesus, be assured then that this church prays for you. We don't pray for you, I wouldn't think, by name. Could happen, but doesn't. That's not the routine. But we pray for you and for your salvation. As we pray for our city, our region, and to the ends of the world. We pray that God will hear that prayer. We pray that you would come to the salvation that we so know and rejoice in. But Paul now expands on some of the intended outcomes of the church that prays for the salvation of all. There in verse 2, for kings, all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Link this directly to verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He wants people of all sorts and all places to come to a knowledge of salvation in his name. So he rejoices with the church that prays to that end and the church that lives a sacrificial life as described here, peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified. This phrase in verse 3 that this is pleasing in the sight of the Lord draws back upon sacrificial language from the Old Testament. It's saying that that type of life is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now there's a lot going on here. This peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified life is not free-floating. It's very connected to the context. These qualities of soul are directly connected to the prayers for all people and Christ's mission to save sinners. So prayer for governing officials shows that we have their best interest in view. 
We want them to come to saving faith. But such prayers also flow with the knowledge that officials can allow us to spread the message of salvation or they can hinder it. And so we pray that the governing officials rule honorably so we can live open lives of godly dignity before a watching world. We pray for the salvation of our governing leaders. We pray for a social environment that permits us freedom to proclaim Christ. In a very secondary way, we've seen the significance of this in our own life as a church. We have personally sent representatives and teachers who have accomplished great good in the land of China. We have supported for years a missionary family working in that land of China. And all of that is dead today. People sent home, the whole situation changing. Though he was not aware of it at the time, believed what he was telling me, I stayed with a man there in China with a couple in their apartment, and he said, you're free to take your Bible, you're free to go to church, there are freedoms everywhere for us now that we've not known in the past, and all of that is already gone. We pray in part for governing officials that we might lead a peaceful, dignified life before others, not be running for our lives. And those that we stayed with in that land that we talked to knew restrictions. But now those restrictions have deepened and may God find us praying that they are relieved. Such prayers, such lives are pleasing in the sight of the Lord. That is, we're invested in the mission of the gospel because we know the Savior. And so we pray as a church, we long for the freedom of the gospel. And we pray to that end. But notice verse 4 and its linkage to 115. He desires that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Link that with Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is his heart. This may speak <clears throat> of God's will of desire contrasted with his will of decree. That would be an appropriate, I think, interpretation of the passage. But it's probably not what Paul's thinking about right here. I think the point here is connected to verse 1 and prayers for all people. That is, God's saving interests are universal in their reach to all kinds of people. There's no one restricted. It is not just to the Jews, thinking of Paul's context, he is a Jewish writer. But it is for all peoples. It is for us who have gathered here from many different nations and backgrounds. This is the heart of the Lord it goes into all the world. It connects with Matthew 28 as well. His saving interests do not stop at Jews such as Paul, but rather God's will for the, is for the salvation of male and female, rich and poor, young and old, kings and subjects, and people of every language, tribe, and nation. His reach with the good news of salvation is universal. And so we receive, as I've said often in our travels overseas, with varying cultures, varying churches, there's a connection with those people that's closer than the connection I have with my neighbors. There's a oneness in Christ 
that pervades the entire earth and is linking God's people together across the distances and from varying languages, tribes, and nations because Christ is King. The salvation of which Paul speaks here is described as coming to a knowledge of the truth. So verse 4, he desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That is, to be saved means a coming to the knowledge of the truth. Now this isn't just an academic idea, but notice here that it, it emphasizes the word come. To come, the sinner Jesus came to save must come in humble, repentant trust in Jesus as Savior. There's a coming that is necessary. And this coming is based on the knowledge of the truth. That is, on an appreciation of the objective revelation that God provides for this salvation as one receives that and comes to that light, drawn by God, certainly, and yet responding, we come to this knowledge of the truth and apprehension of this objective revelation. What is that truth that we must come to know? The answer is filled out in the entire New Testament. It's filled out in this entire book. But the answer is already right there in front of us, isn't it? Chapter 1 and verse 15, we are sinners. Christ came into the world to save sinners. That is, God has issued His law. God has said as Creator and Ruler and King of Kings, this is what I demand of you. That you would not envy in person or on your phone. That you would not hate others in person or on your phone. That you would not lie or steal. That you would have no sexual lust for someone who is not your mate. That you would love others as you love yourself. That you would be kind to one another. That you would be tender-hearted toward all. That you would love mercy and generosity. And on it goes. And every one of us before that law falls short. As Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. And there's a beauty to that as we come into the assembly. We don't come into the assembly as those who are pretty good and trying to get a little better. We come into the assembly as those who are fallen, who break the law of God and have been forgiven. And that's the second piece that we see here. So first of all, that we are sinners, 115. But also secondly, here in verse 4, that Christ came. It's a strange way of talking about someone who comes into the world, that they came into the world. Hey, we say that in one sense, but we know that we begin at conception. But for Christ, it's something different. He came into the world. The eternal Son of the one triune Godhead came to earth and took on flesh. And the third piece we find in verses 5-6, through six, and we'll work that out here for some time. But we are sinners. There is a Savior who has come. We move now to this second line of argument that Jesus is the only mediator by which all must be saved. So the church prays for the salvation of sinners who break the law of God. Well, Jesus is the only mediator by which all must be saved. Verse 5, 
For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There is only one God. That was pretty provocative at saying that in Ephesus. It's not like he's on a home game here. We say there is one God. One possible source of salvation from sin. The very God that we have offended. And within the triune Godhead, there is only one mediator, and that is the eternal Son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus serves to mediate, that he's, He stands between us and the Father as the mediator of a new covenant between God and sinners. Jesus Himself put it this way in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. You see the connection there with come. No one is ushered into the presence of God in a saving way except through Jesus Christ. He is the Savior that brings us to the Father whom we have offended, whose law we have broken. He is the mediator in that sense. He is the man. Jesus took on human flesh in order to bridge the gap between God and man. He took on genuine flesh and bone. So that he could fulfill the work described in verse 6. So as that mediator, that one who can bring us to God, how did he do this? Verse 6, he gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. He gave himself as a ransom for all. This is a crucial point to grasp in the argument. A ransom is a price paid to purchase the release of something. Often it was used to purchase the release of a slave. A ransom is paid. And we might see it in our context. You're maybe watching a a detective show. And there's a hostage situation. And in that hostage situation, there's a, a police officer, an FBI agent, or something like that, that tries to substitute his position with that of, let's say, a young girl that's being held in that place. I mean, what's the difference if it's me or her? Take me in her place. That's a concept here. There's someone taking another person's place. Now, it's much more than I've illustrated here because the person who is enslaved is enslaved because of their own sin. And he takes our place. So how did Jesus pay the judgment price of sinners for them? Verse 6 says it simply this way. He gave himself. He gave himself as a ransom for all. He willingly substituted his life in my place and died the death that I deserved. He could do this as God because he was not dying for his own sins, for there were none. He could do this as man because he could genuinely suffer the life-suffocating cost of our judgment. Now here then is the good news. This means that those who come to Christ in simple faith, trusting that he died for them, their sins are forgiven past, present, and future. Not to live however we choose, of course, but to live in response and thanksgiving that one has stood in my place and paid the judgment that I deserve for my sin. 
He gave himself as a ransom for all sorts of people. There's no class that's cut out. This is no sweep my sin under the carpet type of fantasy game. My sin is forgiven because the ultimate price of death has been paid for me by Christ's substitutionary death. It's an amazing gift of God. One will come to stand in the place of the many and give free forgiveness of sin by actually paying the true debt we owed. That's the testimony given at the proper time. I think that means, that, as one has put it, the decisive moment in history which God in His providence had fixed for the accomplishment of this purpose. You are not an afterthought here. This was a purpose in the plan of God from eternity past. At the exact best moment on the timeline of salvation history, Jesus died as the sacrificial Lamb of God in the place of all who will trust Him in saving faith. And it's no random event. It is indeed a testimony, which in this context has the idea of an objective, observable, historical moment to which people such as the Apostle Paul bear witness. It was no hidden event. And as Paul continues here in verse 7, just to close out his thought, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm proclaiming this truth, and I'm an official representative of Christ. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. As a Jewish man, the reference to his mission to Gentiles again sounds this theme of the message of salvation to the ends of the earth with the authority of Christ. Paul's witness is not based on falsehood and deception, he assures Timothy, but it operates in the sphere of faith and truth. So why did Jesus live? As he himself said in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He lived in order to die that he might thereby save sinners. And I wonder, friend, today, do you see yourself that way? Do you personally see yourself as a sinner who has broken the law of God in, way, in many, many ways? If not, if you think you are okay, then this one who came to save sinners will have no part of your future as you stand before the throne of God someday. You'll be standing there on your own. And if you think that you're okay, you will enter into eternity before God's throne then to answer for yourself. Standing before the King of kings and the holy God who knows no sin, you will answer for yourself. But if you see yourself as a sinner who falls short of the glory of God, who has broken his law, who cannot save himself or herself, There is great hope here. This is why Jesus came. He came to save sinners, chapter 1 and verse 15. Verse 6, he gave himself as a ransom for all. This was the very purpose of his mission. The good news 
is not that Jesus will merely rescue you from evil forces that are posed against you. He may choose to do that. He may not. The good news is not that Jesus will merely enlighten you and bring you to a higher level of spiritual consciousness. Certainly that will be the result. The good news is not that God finds you so valuable to Him that He designs a wonderful plan for your life to help you realize your potential. The good news is this. It is that Jesus will rescue you from the wrath of God that would fall against your sin if left to yourself. That you can trust His substitutionary death and His resurrection from the grave as your salvation. The price of your sin, His death. The victory over that cost and sin his resurrection power and life. It is simply for us then today in that position to come to Him. To come to Him as the sinner that you are. To embrace that gift of salvation as so many of us have. And then to that end continue to pray. Since it was Christ's purpose to save sinners. That his purpose was to lay down his life for the salvation of the lost. Then one of the purposes of the gathered church is to continue to pray to that end. If you're in the spot today where you say, I don't have that salvation. I am that sinner. I just don't get it. I'm not sure that I even am willing to turn from my sin and embrace Christ as Savior. Come back and let us keep praying for you. And we will keep praying for you. If you come back next week, come back next month, come back whenever the doors are here and there is a church that is praying that you would see that Jesus came to save sinners like you. We sing and we testify and we gather as an assembly because He has worked He has worked this wonder in our lives. It's real. It's genuine. And there is in its place, by the grace of God, a life that is peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified, and proclaims the name of Jesus Christ for what it is. The Savior. The King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's bow together for prayer. God, encourage us to remain faithful to that calling as a church. We can turn our gatherings and we can turn our attention to all kinds of things that lead us away from what really matters. But I thank you that you have allowed this church to gather and so many others around us and throughout this world to gather around the truth that Christ came into this world to save sinners. And we plead, Father, that we might ever lift up that message. And for those who are interested and thinking and curious, wondering if this is even possible, I pray that you'd move by your Spirit in their hearts to see the truth that you have revealed and that they would return to be with us and maybe even today ask someone to guide, to direct them to the truth that you have given to us. Lord, we thank you for this gathering today of your people. 
as well. And we pray, Father, that we would remain faithful, that indeed that we would be convicted of our failures to see the saving work of Christ at the heart of everything that we do and believe. Deepen us and grow us around that truth. And Father, together I pray that this day would be lived for the glory of your name. And we pray that you will do that work in the heart of each one of us. What is it that each individual in this congregation needs right now as they respond to the message that Christ Jesus came to save sinners and was a ransom for the lost? What do we need to do in response? I pray that by your Spirit you'd bring that conviction and that change and allow us to respond in a God-honoring way, we pray, through Jesus. Amen.